Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, January the 3rd. Hope you're all ready for the first weekend of 2020. I can only say these stupid start-of-the-year greetings so many more times, so I'm going to take advantage here while I can. Now, Team Canada is set to take on Finland tomorrow at the World Junior Hockey Championship. We will have that game for you here on Radio NL with pregame starting at 9 o'clock in the morning. We will also have some more junior hockey action for you tonight when the Kamloops Blazers host the Vancouver Giants at the Sandman Center. The Blazers are looking to get back in the win column after back-to-back losses to Everett and Victoria. Horia here earlier in the week uh, slash the weekend. The Royals are hot on the Blazers' heels right now in the standings, sitting five points back with two games in hand, and those two teams will meet again tomorrow night here in Kamloops. So a couple of big games coming up here this weekend for our boys, the Kamloops Blazers. I do have a good show lined up here today. In a few minutes here, I'll be joined by Councillor Dennis Walsh, who has some concerns about the 66-year-old Trans Mountain Pipeline running under the city's west side area. He says that it is unsafe for residents and should be moved and decommissioned. Walsh says he has the documents to prove it, and we'll be providing that information to Kamloops City Council here later this month, so he's set to join me in studio in just a little bit. 2019 was a standout year for women in the film industry. A study released yesterday by the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative reports that 12 of 2019's top 100 grossing films were helmed by women. That number is greater than researchers have ever recorded. So this is clearly a watershed moment, but still, I mean, that figure is considerably low. Uh, It is a very low number that could definitely afford to be higher. But that said, the needle has moved, which equals progress. And there are stories that uh, women have that should be told. And it looks like that is starting to happen on a more regular basis. So to kick off the back half of today's show, I will be joined by Vesta Giles. She is a screenwriter, director, and freelance writer from right here in Kamloops and will help provide a little perspective as to what this means in the immediate and what this trend is showing as we move forward towards equality in the workplace, which, of course, includes the film industry. And to end off today's show, I will be joined in studio by the president of the Kamloops and District Real Estate Association to take a look back at the month of December and also look at 2019 as a whole. December saw 155 home sales here in the Kamloops district compared to just 123 sales in the same month in 2018 and the number of new listings was also up significantly in December with 188 homes hitting the market compared to 137 in that same time period in 2018. That's a gain of about 37%. And in terms of the year overall there was a slight decrease in the number of sales. 2,892 homes were sold in 2019 in Kamloops district. That compares to 2,974 sales in 2018 So Wendy will help break down the year that was in Kamloops and uh, when it comes to the real estate market here in the district. But to begin today's show, I wanted to take a look at a new study out of the University of Oregon State. It uh, takes a look at how legalized cannabis is impacting the amount in which college students binge drink. Now, in the U.S., the drinking age is 21, so that uh, you know that fact alone may show some different perspective in terms of the stats that would apply here in Canada, especially considering that pot is also legal across the country as opposed to just in individual states as it is in the U.S. But I still believe that the data here um, you know, has some correlation 
correlation. It will apply uh, north of the border. So one of the paper's authors, Zoe Alley, is quoted as saying the biggest takeaway from the paper is that problem binge drinking in college students who are 21 and over changes after the implementation of recreational marijuana use. So binge drinking is defined as having five or more drinks at one time, and then they... Um, you know, when they were doing their survey, they basically broke it down into a time period to ask if you had done that at some point in the last two weeks. So those responding, uh, saying they had been binge drinking, had done so, had five or more drinks and one sitting at some point over the past couple of weeks. Now, the study shows that states that had legalized cannabis had 6% decrease odds of binge drinking among students 21 and over. A psychology professor at Oregon uh, says... That once you turn 21 in states without marijuana legalization, alcohol suddenly becomes very easy to come by, relatively speaking. So people might switch to that, so it makes alcohol easier to access and makes it more likely for people to choose that as their vice, which makes sense, right? It's a lot easier to walk into a store and show you some ID and buy it, as opposed to, uh, you know, hitting up the black market for your cannabis. Now, Ali says that when you reach the legal drinking age, suddenly a lot of people transition to using more alcohol because now it's more available and marijuana is not. And when you change that, uh, when marijuana is legal, you might see less of that substitution, which makes sense, right? So, um, Alcohol, easier to come by. You can walk into a store. You can buy it. Cannabis, you have to go out to the black market in order to find it. Therefore, you're more likely to begin drinking more as a result of its availability. Whereas if marijuana was also available, you might walk into the marijuana store and buy that as opposed to going to the liquor store. Now, with states where marijuana is legal, people, like I said, are less likely to switch to alcohol as their substance of choice, and therefore there are fewer issues when it comes to problem drinking. Ali believes that people are expanding or substituting substances based on availability and convenience. And, of course, legality changes that. Now, with all of that in mind, the question then needs to be asked, is offsetting problem drinking with higher rates of cannabis use, is that a good thing when it comes to public health? Well, I personally would say that there are a lot more issues with over drinking. Um, take a look here. A large review published in August 2016 in the medical journal The Lancet that found that people aged uh, 15 to 49, alcohol use was the leading health risk factor across the globe in 2016 for people aged 15 to 49. They had a 3.8% of all female deaths and 12.2% of all male deaths were attributed to some form of alcohol use. The more people drank across the globe, the more their risk of dying and their risk of cancer rose as well. And the study authors uh, also found that as a result of these findings, were able to conclude that there was no safe level of alcohol consumption. I mean, some people like to say, hey, a drink a day is good for you for whatever reason. Having one beer a day is good for, for this reason. There's a lot of uh, old wives' tales out there. Or, or uh, you know, if you, if you want something to be good for you and you want to be able to prove that it's good for you, there's probably some data somewhere that you can point to and say, look, no, see, this thing says that it's fine. Is it always true? Probably not. Sometimes it is, but like, you, uh, like we always say, you can't believe everything you see on TV. Well, of course, you can't believe everything that you read on the Internet. But, uh, hey, if it makes your point feel better, if it makes you feel better about yourself, I guess, uh, you know, go ahead and find that information. But like this uh, article in 2016 in this medical journal said, there was no safe level of alcohol consumption. Uh, more than 30,000 Americans died from alcohol-induced causes in 2014, where there have been zero documented deaths from marijuana use alone. Let me say that again. More than 30,000 Americans died from alcohol use causes in 2014. 
Zero documented deaths from marijuana use alone. There was no date. There's no year attached to that figure. Right? We're talking 30,000 deaths that had some level of alcohol as a factor in 2014 in the U.S. This doesn't even have a country attached to it. Zero documented deaths from marijuana use alone. That stat should be enough to say that one might be less dangerous than the other. That said, this is all just one study that says we're less likely to make the switch to alcohol as our drug of choice if cannabis is legal. But, of course, there are other studies out there that don't necessarily make that same conclusion. In late 2018, about half of self-reported cannabis users polled in Canada said that they would drink less under legalization. Though a pollster that uh, spoke on this subject pointed out that there are differences between what we think we're going to do and what we're actually going to do. So people might have said that they were less likely to start drinking more if cannabis was legal and they'd stick to their pot. But, uh, of course, uh, you know, saying something and doing something are two totally different things. So we have had legal pot here in Canada for about over, well, for over a year now. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just curious when we will begin to see the decrease in alcohol sales that will come as a result of a rise in weed sales. I personally think it is just a matter of time. But we'll see. Coming up next, Kamloops Councillor Dennis Walsh joins me to talk about concerns over the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the infrastructure that currently lies in Westside, so stay tuned. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back here on Friday. Hope you all are ready for your weekend. Uh, I know council has been off for a little bit of time, but they're starting to get ready for their uh, next meeting here on January 14th. Uh, one councillor says he has some documents that he will be providing to city council to prove that the 66-year-old Trans Mountain Pipeline running under the city's west side area is unsafe for residents and should be moved and decommissioned. I'm joined in studio now by that councillor, Mr. Dennis Walsh. Dennis, thanks so much yeah. for coming in. Good morning. So, I mean, uh, before we get into the, the details here, I mean, just to how have the holidays been? They've been good. Yeah. No, I, I went to visit my daughter in Alberta, so I was out of town for a little while. <laughs> Had some time to, to relax and yeah. meet family, all that good stuff. So uh, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, just, I guess, getting ready for, for work to begin here for Council the 14th, and, and this is when you're planning to bring this up, right? Yes. Perfect. So um, maybe just talk a little bit about how this kind of hit your radar first and foremost. Like when, when did you kind of start realizing that, uh, you know, this issue of, of the Trans Mountain in Westside, when did that sort of grab your attention? Well, it was just recently in a meeting we just had, um, I think it was the last meeting of the year, I believe, the um, Canadian energy regulators came to give us a presentation about the update on the Trans Mountain, how they're starting the construction in um, the spring. So, but in that conversation, um, the mayor used the word rerouting the west side line. And um, so, I mean, I went back and looked at the tapes to see if that... So, I've always been under the impression that they always use the word, they're twinning the pipeline. And mm -hmm. so, I thought it was being twinned through Lac de Bois and they were going to decommission the west side line. But so, I, I became aware. And, and that fact wasn't even corrected for about seven minutes to the end of the meeting when I started asking the CER rep how they're going to decommission the west side line. And she started telling me and then somebody interrupts and says it's actually not being decommissioned, right? So it was there's confusion. It looks to me on council too, because nobody in that seven-minute period nobody interrupted and corrected mm -hmm. 
the statement. So I, I, what have you done now um, since that time? So last council meeting there when the energy regulator was here, you kind of had this issue brought to your attention. And then you started doing some digging, I guess, right? To, yeah. to see exactly kind of what the extent of the concerns should be. So, so what kind of information were you able to come up with that sort of is driving your point home that this is something that people should be aware of? Well, they came back, you know, you know and, and after that happened, then I got calls from Westside residents, right? So, and, and people that come in the coffee shop and talk to me. And they, they're, they're quite concerned because I think... It, the general feeling was it was going to be moved up to Lac de Bois. So, um, yeah, so the, the, the research was, it's basically motivated by the fact that Trans Mountain made a, a, a statement in the public, in the uh, media, that it was, they built that pipeline in 1953, 66 years ago, to be indefinite, right? Right. That's the wording they used. And so, I mean, I thought that was preposterous because to me nothing is manufactured to be light, a For lifetime sure, of course. So, or beyond a lifetime. So 66 years is a long time. So, so then I did some research, you know, that, that there's um, people sent me stuff that wasn't even requested. Um, I've been, uh, there's a couple, uh, John McNamer and Dr. Susan Mann, who are really concerned about the health effects of it, if there was any kind of a leak in that pipeline because of the benzene and what's happening in other areas in Michigan and stuff like that. They've had to permanently evacuate residents because of a pipeline and mm -hmm. it, it was a deal bit again like the the bitumen right so um yeah so that so all this stuff came through and there's a organization down in vancouver that that is doing research on it too and the, the risk is is that if you're living underneath a a pipeline, especially a 66-year-old pipeline, there is definitely a health and safety risk. Right. So, I mean, uh, when we talk about pipelines, I guess the, the whole issue or argument for pro-pipeline is that it's safer than rail, right? It's easier to, to move things across the country when we're talking about oil. Um, and, and although that might be the case when we're talking about a residential area like Westside, yeah. right, just the risk that even something could happen is pretty substantial. So, yeah. I guess, you know, even though there, there might not be a massive risk in terms of uh, an accident actually happening, if something were to happen, I mean, we're talking in, I mean, you, you mentioned in Michigan, 150 families have been permanently evacuated. Uh, or sorry, that's in, that's in Abbotsford. That's here in, in BC. Yeah. So, I mean, you don't have to look very far to see the possible problems that could arise from this. And, yeah. and you've had a number of conversations with people who, who share these concerns. Um, and I guess this is kind of the lone opportunity, really, to, to go about seeing this tw this uh, pipeline here in Westside decommissioned and moved, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the timing is now. I mean, it's not like we're just coming out of nowhere asking this because they are digging a trench to Lac de Bois. Um, in our estimation, you know, to put two pipes in there would be, would be really smart in the sense of limiting the liability to the West Side residents. Um, have you had any conversations with, uh, with Trans Mountain yet at this point? I mean, I know it hasn't been an extended period of time and there was the holiday period, so it might be yeah. difficult to get a hold of anybody, but just curious if you've had any no, contact I, with I, them. I'd like to talk to the CAR rep because they're, they're, they've replaced the National Energy Board, right? So they, they, and they have a mandate now, which is good because they, in the past there wasn't a mandate to, you know, to, they, they're responsible for the safety of the pipeline, right? And, and of the people living above the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So um, with the new mandate, um, I think if the city council was to vote through this motion and send a letter, there's no really downside to the city asking, requesting to move this pipeline. It, mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't cost us anything. It's just, um, to, uh, to me, it's us doing our due diligence to, you know, to protect the health and safety of residents. Um, I mean, do you foresee any pushback from council? I can't imagine why there would be any. I mean, you mentioned yourself, it just seems like doing your due diligence, right, to at least request this motion move yeah. forward, right? 
Yeah, because I mean, it's not, people are confusing it with this. This has nothing to do with a protest of whether or not the Trans Mountain should be built. It's just, it, it's coming, it's coming through our city. So let, let's do the best we can in the sense of ensuring that the future safety and health of the population, right? So Yeah, and while this work is going on, so they're gonna, supposedly going to be starting work here in Kamloops, I believe in the spring or tail end of spring, early yes. summer is, is the yeah. plan anyway. So that's, I mean, you basically have a really short window here to sort of make this yeah, case. Yeah, it's unfortunate that, yeah, you know, I didn't come to my attention and I think whenever I heard twinning I, I just made in this false assumption obviously and I think uh, apparently when the calls I'm getting from Westside uh, a lot of people were under the impression it was going to be moved so uh, I'm, I'm curious if you know um, sort of how this process would work then I mean is it that you make the pitch to the Canadian energy regulator who would then um, sort of make that case to, to Trans Mountain is that how this kind of works once you make the push to council assuming council would sign up on this document does it go to the energy regulator yeah, that's that. We would send a letter to the uh, Canadian Energy Regulator, and um, and it would be up to them to because um, they have the the power to demand the Trans Mountain extension be moved, right? Like or this one to be moved, anyways, on the west side. So. Um, that's all we need to do is just as a council request this and, and then I think you know otherwise we're open to a lot of li city as a liability um, I think it's a smart thing to do because you know 66 year old pipeline at some point whether that's 5 10 20 years but at some point that pipeline is going to degrade yeah, 66 years. I mean, it sounds like like a long time, and um, I, you've you've done some research here to come up with some of the possible concerns yeah. when we're looking at erosion or um, you know just yeah. the metal slowly slowly being eaten away at. I mean, uh, as time moves on, right? I guess yeah. the, the and risk. And there's accidents, right? Like we're, yeah. we're you know throughout the city. I mean, I hear the, you know the the Fortis natural gas lines. You know, when there's construction next door, the the maps are wrong or whatever, and so like that's what happened in Burnaby. A backhoe operator hit the pipeline mm -hmm. and spilled I think a million. Of gallons of uh, crude oil back then. Yeah, it always baffles me how often yeah. that actually happens where yeah. people, uh, I don't want to say they don't call before they dig, but just I guess the maps are wrong or the lines aren't located properly yeah. and, and you know you hit a line and, and that's it, right? Yeah. It only takes one little nick and something bad could potentially yeah. happen, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, anything else that you want to kind of throw on the table while I have you here? I mean, just excited to get back to work again. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, because it's it basically. I, I think we, it was a well-deserved holiday. We took off before, you know. So, starting January 1st, I sent out a media release and started getting back. And and there's a lot of calls we get from residents about mm -hmm. certain concerns. So, yeah. So we're we're kind of back in in the mix now. So I'm looking forward to the meeting on January 14th. Right on. And this will be coming up at that point in time. Thanks so much for yes. coming in, Dennis. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll look ahead to council here and we'll chat at. at at some point again in the near future, hopefully. Okay, thanks for the invite. Right on. That was uh, Kamloops City Councilor Dennis Walsh talking about uh, some concerns about the Trans Mountain Pipeline and threatening the community out in Westside. So uh, we'll be paying attention to uh, the meeting on the 14th and, and see what council decides and whether they send that letter to the energy regulator. Coming up after the break, it was a uh, fantastic year for women in the film industry talking about those behind the camera in 2019. I'll be talking more about that after this. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on Friday, January 3rd. Thanks for tuning in. 2019, it was a banner year in Hollywood for women behind the camera. A study reports that 12 of 2019's top 100 grossing films were helmed by women, a number that is greater than researchers have ever recorded. So the findings do suggest that some measure of change is coming to a film industry where inequality behind the camera has remained stubbornly persistent. Here to talk with me about this progress is a screenwriter, director, and freelance writer from right here in Kamloops. She was a winner of one of the 2018 Story Hive Digital Short Grants for her short film 
film When I'm Dead, and recent work does include The Dirt Chicks, Making Time, which was a documentary that tells the story of a Kamloops all-women local mountain biking group. I'm joined now on the phone by Vesta Giles. Vesta, thanks so much for coming on here today. Thanks for having me here. So, uh, a big year for women in the film industry. I mean, we're talking some pretty significant steps when a dozen of the top 100 grossing movies of the year had uh, female directors. So, as a female director yourself, I mean, just, just how do you look at this progress that's been made here? I mean, it looks like um, some, some significant uh, change or some significant uptick in the number of women behind the camera when looking just even year over year from 2018 to 2019. I mean, what, what does this mean to you? Well, for me, uh, a big part of it means that being in Canada, um, there's a huge push from all the major funding organizations like Telefilm, CBC, Bell, Rogers, etc., and TELUS um, to have 50-50 by 2020. And I think they still have a long way to go, but the idea behind that is gender parity by 2020. So 50% of the women behind the camera in key roles such as producing, directing, writing, and cinematography would be women. And we're not quite there yet, but there have been huge strides in Canada, and I think even more than in the U.S. Uh, for me personally, it means that there's a lot more money um, being targeted towards projects helmed by women. And I think that's a huge thing because um, traditionally I think they have been ignored, and our projects have been sort of not funded to the same extent that the projects helmed by men were funded. Yeah, so as, as a female director yourself, I mean, have you had that experience in, in the past? I mean, have you, you know, kind of felt some inequality when it comes to trying to get some funding or even just trying to get a directing gig? I mean, have you, have you seen some difficulty to, to kind of break through that maybe your male counterparts might not have faced? I don't think I've seen it personally because I don't work in the sort of Vancouver, um, the really busy, hectic film scene in Vancouver. I mean, I'd have to move down there to do right. that, and that's really not my interest. Um, in Kamloops, there's three of us, well, there's, there's more women directors coming up, but there's three of us that have had projects this year that are pretty key, and we've gotten really good funding for it, and we're the ones that are hiring our crews. So um, you look at Jen Stone, she's got two projects on the go right now. Uh, C.J. Beauclair had one um, going this year, too. So for us, we're kind of creating our own industry, but I do know that the people that I, I connect with in Vancouver have noticed that and have said that it's so much harder for women to find those directing jobs um, when they're competing against men that it's it's more of an assumption that they're going to get the job so the women have to work just that much harder but these gender parity initiatives especially by telefilm who's such a huge funder in canada have meant that these large productions need to look at women and they need to to consider them equally instead of um, as a second choice. Do you think that, uh, you know, when looking at, at you yourself here in Kamloops and you had mentioned, you know, you, when you have uh, control of, of your own project that you get to hire your staff and, and you get to kind of have more of a say in, in who's involved, um, do you think that starting th um, with places like Kamloops, even if it is a smaller center and you are able to get more young girls and more females involved, that that will eventually translate to bigger markets like Vancouver? I mean, you say you, you know, you haven't seen it because, uh, or you're, you haven't seen the inequality because you're not in a bigger center like Vancouver, but do you think that maybe starts in a place like Kamloops, a, a smaller center, and, and then that can kind of transition to those bigger markets? Absolutely, because I think when even um, people that I've talked to, young women who were in the Dirt Chicks or women who were extras in my um, music video that shot a year ago yesterday, um, a lot of them looked at me and look at Jen now or look at CJ and go, oh, this is an option that I could do. I'm a girl and I live in Kamloops 
and this this is something that I could do. And and if I did want to move to Vancouver or Toronto or somewhere else, I could I could take that skill and go there. And um, I think just by seeing women in those roles. The younger women coming up are thinking, oh, that's an option for me that I didn't realize was there. And so you look at things like we have an art school and we have a, a pretty thriving um, you know, acting school through Western Canada Theatre. Those kids are going to see that these options are available to them and that they're, they're not going to assume that they have to work harder. It's just going to be um, something that they really know that, uh, you know, I'm a woman and these options are available to me and it doesn't matter that I'm a woman. Uh, here with Kamloops Film Director Vesta Giles. So, yeah, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, that if we see these changes made now, then those young girls who might have an interest in the industry, who, um, you know, are coming up, uh, maybe have just started in the industry or are thinking about it as a career option, that, um, you know, it, it does look like something that is actually realistic. I guess in the past, do you think a lot of women coming up would have kind of maybe had the dream and, and have been really gung-ho about getting into movies and maybe had those kind of dreams shot down pretty quick? Do you, do you think that... Uh, uh, that used to be the case, and, and hopefully now we're, we're not seeing that as much. Those dreams aren't being crushed, at least as, as quickly as, as maybe it had been in the past. Yeah, I think that's totally it. And, you know, even when you see yourself represented, it's all about representation. So if you see yourself represented on a screen or um, in an interview with somebody who's making films, then you realize that, um, that that's an option available to you. And if you, if you never see yourself represented, if you only ever see interviews with male directors, you're going to assume somewhere in the back of your mind that that's not an option for me. And I think that's so, that's so different than, you know, say even 10 years ago where that was a, a reality in people's minds. And now people look at it and go, well, no, if, if they can do it, I can do it. So there's, there's not that sort of assumption that that's not available for me anymore. Now it's an assumption that it is available for me. Yeah, and, and as I was doing some, some preparation here and looking at this story, um, one of the things that did come up was a, a nice interview out of the, the TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, that spoke with a number of these directors who were part of these uh, 12 high-grossing films from 2019. And, it, and yeah, it, w it was just something, that you, you know, I, I'm not used to seeing a, a room full of female directors who are able to sort of have their perspective and, and, and speak about their pictures and their films. And, uh, yeah, it was just something that, you know, you don't see or hadn't seen very much in the past, and I think we'll see more of moving forward. Um, I also want to ask, too, I mean, when we're talking about those behind the camera, uh, females behind the camera, I mean, how important do you think it is, you know, obviously parity is important and equality is important, but just from the storytelling perspective, because, you know, when we see male directors dominating the industry, I mean, that's really only getting the male point of view when, when we're talking about storytelling. Uh, how important or, or how different do you think it is when we're looking at, at a female behind the camera and just their ability to tell the story and, and come at it from a different point of view? I mean, do you think we're, we're, we'll see some changes in the way not changes in the way stories are told, but just changes in the perspectives that are being shown on camera as a result of this shift to, to having more equality? I do think so. And I think, um, I think when women see their own stories, they're more, more eager to go to films. And, I mean, women make up 51% of the movie-going audience. And so, yeah, they want to see their own stories. And those stories that are by and about women actually do really well. They get less funding, but they do really well at the box office. And that's, you know, kind of going up, swimming upstream. So I think definitely the storytelling perspective is shifted. And I like having a balance on my crew. I like having... Um, you know, the guys that are saying, well, you know, what do you mean you're talking about this? And, and like, even with the dirt chicks, you know, they looked at me a couple times and went, what? But because they didn't get that perspective. And they were, 
you know, opened up to seeing the perspective of women and the, the way that women think. And I think the more that we all work together sort of in these balanced teams, we have this kind of beautiful flow of perspectives that work really well together and it's not so weighted to a man's way of thinking about how a woman should behave or how a woman thinks like for a man to be portraying on a film how a woman is thinking they rarely get it right <laughs> you know <laughs> come on but for and, and the same thing with women you know like i'm not going to assume that i understand a man's perspective all the time i want to have balance i want to have input from my crew and we have a, ta a small really tight crew that that really are encouraged to share and to ask questions and to give their opinions and uh and it really like when we do interviews for the dirt chicks once I finished all my interviews, then my cinematographer, Joseph Perzon, I always say to him, what do you have to ask? And his questions are always really interesting that I would have never thought of. And so I think we all get that shared perspective and that kind of enhanced perspective by having a balanced um, mentality on a crew. I also want to have, you know, more... LGBTQ, and I want to have more perspectives of different cultures. Like that's one thing that um, you know the the women, the, the number of women behind the camera has improved, but the women of color is still really struggling, and Indigenous women, and you know these are perspectives that we need to have. We need to have all these things contributing to the stories that we tell. Yeah, definitely important to have a nice diverse crew and in any industry, not just film, but in any workplace. I think, uh, you know, as very well proven, if everybody agrees, it's not really going to make for the most uh, productive of work because, you know, not everyone is right. So if we're all saying the same thing, then chances are you're going to get it wrong once in a while. I'll get you out of here on this, Vesta, because um, you had mentioned that 2020 was sort of a, a goal, uh, an aim for the Canadian film industry to, to be at 50-50. Um, do you think we'll get there in 2020 or do you think we'll at least be close? And is, is there a year in mind? where you think maybe, you know, 2021, 2022, is there a time frame where you see that, that goal actually being achieved? Um, I, I'm not sure that they're going to hit it in 2020. I mean, the thing is, with the film industry, you don't just make a film in a month. It takes, you know, like two years sometimes to make a film, so it takes that long to turn the ship. Um, I think that we could hit it in the next couple of years, though. I could definitely see, like, 2022, 2023, really seeing good quality uh, gender parity that's not just based on tokenism, which is another thing that kind of bothers me is, well, we'll put a woman in this role just because we need to have a woman to tick this box. You know, I really want to see the women getting their shake at the, at the, at the great opportunities mm -hmm. because they deserve it. And that also involves getting experience and training and getting feedback and, um, you know, all these things. And it takes a while to kind of turn that boat. You don't just turn it in a month. But I think I could definitely see it in the next couple of years, especially in Canada. Yeah, well, it's definitely a good goal to have in mind and, and something that uh, I'm sure we'll, we will see achieved uh, in the not-too-distant future. Hopefully it happens sooner than later. Vesta, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. Right on. That was Vesta Giles, screenwriter, director, and freelance writer from right here in Kamloops, talking about a big year for women behind the camera in 2019. So uh, just a quick recap one more time. Over the past 12 months, the likes of uh, Greta Gerwig, who produced or directed Little Women, Lorene Sufaria, Hustlers, Olivia Wilde, Booksmart, Lulu Wang, The Farewell, and uh, Melina Matsukas, The Queen and Slim. So these women, you know, help propel a number of these female helm movies to new heights, uh, some 10.6% of the 100 
100 highest grossing films of the year were from female directors. And in fact, two of the top 10 most successful global releases, Frozen 2 and Captain Marvel, were co-directed by women. So that's, that's a big jump from 2018 when a meager 4.5% of the top films were overseen by women. So definitely uh, some progress being made, but still some work to do uh, when it comes to parody behind the camera. Coming up after the break, I take a look at real estate figures in Kamloops District for December, as well as 2019 as a whole. So I'll be joined by Kadria President Wendy Runge after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Friday, January 3rd. 2019 is, of course, now in the past, providing a chance to look back at the year as a whole, and that exercise is beneficial in a number of areas, including real estate. Here now to take a look back at the month of December and 2019 as a whole is the president of the Kamloops and District Real Estate Association, Wendy Runge. Wendy, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's just start by looking at last month. So December, 155 home sales in the month compared to just 123 in December 2018. That's a pretty substantial year-over-year -year increase. I mean, is there any reason you can think of as to why that's the case? It was a really unique December, that, something that we don't normally have or see. But I think, I w as I was mentioning earlier, I think weather has something to do with it sometimes, too. We, it was a beautiful December, so people were uh, not feeling cooped up and still out, out and out shopping. Also, I think that some of the things happening at the coast, the strength of the market, things turning around there is also boosting a little bit of confidence. Yeah, so uh, I mean, so we saw some pretty strong movement in December, and that's sort of, a, I guess, a bit of a reflection on kind of the year as a whole. It was a pretty strong 2019 for for the Kamloops district in terms of, of real estate. I mean, can you can you kind of put it into numbers? I know there was a slight dip in number of sales overall, right, from 2018, but overall another strong year. Yeah, sales have been uh, have been down a bit month over month, but year end we ended up being just having a decrease of just over three and a half percent. So really very stable year as far as sales go, and um, you know typical. That was the typical thing we saw month over month, and then December we saw that increase, so that kind of helped boost us over uh, the whole year. And and you had mentioned, you know, talking about the market uh, kind of down on the coast. I mean, they saw some sharp decreases, but Kamloops was almost immune to that. Um, do, do you have any reason as to why that might be the case? Why are people looking at, at Kamloops and, and not looking at Lower Mainland? I think affordability still has a big uh, part to play in it. We're, we're still relatively affordable. I know prices have been increasing steadily, but, um, you know, if you look at comparisons. But the, the market in B.C. in general was hurting other than, you know, some of the northern provinces did mm -hmm. okay. Uh, so some of the things that were meant to slow the market down did, in fact, do that. So speculation tax, vacancy taxes, things like that. And then, of course, the no, new mortgage rules. So Kamloops did seem immune to it. Of course, we're not, we're not party to some of those taxes, but the new mortgage rules did, you know, did it play a part. It didn't seem to affect us too much. When, when you were talking to, to clients, um, you know, when looking at things like the spec tax and stuff, did people consider Kamloops because those taxes weren't, weren't here? Yeah, we did see some of that. People saying, you know, this is a viable option. I think Kamloops in general has, in the media in Canada, has become a place that people had maybe didn't look at before. And because of the lack of tax, and also Sun Peaks is doing really well, you know, people are starting to turn to Kamloops and say, hey, this is place is affordable compared to some of the Okanagan, even the Shushwap areas. So, uh, yeah, Kamloops is getting noticed. And uh, speaking of prices and affordability, the average single-family home price in the stats was up uh, about $20,000 year-over-year uh, from 2019 compared to 2018. Um, so, you know, a, a, quite a bit of an increase, I think. But um, 
do you think that that's going to continue here in 2020? I mean, it felt like almost every month here down the down the stretch run that we were doing a, a new story on the median house price being up. Yep. Um, do, do you see that trend continuing here into 2020? We definitely set quite a few records this uh, last year, um, different median prices, also the average price of single family homes. It's hard to say what will happen. I, I don't I don't see us going crazy and there being, you know, month over month increases steadily, but I think we're going to have a good market. You know, it, we'll see what the first few months happen bring to us, but because of what's happening at the coast and things are recovering and come turning around, I, I think we're in for a good year. Um, and, and you had mentioned as well, um, sorry, um, I got distracted here. Uh, out of the corner of my eye, things were happening in the studio and it distracted me. Um, so... Uh, you 2019, December 2019, uh, a bit of an, an anomaly when talking about, uh, you know, how successful it was uh, in terms of number of sales up quite a bit when compared to 2018. You think it might be weather driven, but I guess, uh, you know, looking here into January of 2020, uh, do you see this this trend of, of stronger months than normal continuing? And, and you, do you think it's still going to be dependent on weather? I mean, we're looking today at a day that's 10 degrees outside. If this sort of type of weather continues into the month for any extended period of time, do you think that, you know, that will impact the number of sales here in January? Yeah, I think weather is just one part part of it. I don't think it's the full right. full picture, but I mean, I think uh, also what's happening in the province has given some confidence to the market as well. So I think if that continues to happen to the coast, we'll continue to see those good numbers. Typically, January is kind of a quiet month. People hunker down and uh, wait out till, you know, mid-February or so. We say our spring market really gets going. Uh, we'll see what happens. December surprised me, so January might as well. Um, are projections like when do you look at uh, years as the whole when you're when you're kind of projecting out? I mean, do you do you look at January now and say this is sort of what we expect the market to look like in 2020? And and do you have any idea how accurate those projections typically are? Is, is it hard to say? Yeah, it's really hard to say. I'm not an economist by any means. I mean, I do listen to lots of the different uh, you know our BC Real Estate Association. We have an economist on on staff, and so we hear you know some projections that they have, and they're projecting us to have a good year, a slight increase of a year, nothing too. Uh, major, but I think they've been surprised uh, before as well at some of the things that Camus has been doing. We um, we did take them, I think everyone, a little bit by surprise at the strength of our market this year. And well, hopefully that will continue here into 2020. And I have uh, less than a minute left here, but just out of curiosity, is there any particular area of town or maybe even just the district that seems to be more popular than, than others right now? No, it, you know, it always kind of varies. We, I mean, Aberdeen and Sahali, those are the ones that always post the big numbers, although this this last month it was North Kamloops and South Kamloops. So it really uh, it depends on the, those areas are dependent on the size. I mean, there's just more homes, so they tend to sell more homes. What we're really looking at is price points. Mm-hmm. So I think the price point that we're still really keeping in is that four to five hundred thousand dollars are the ones that are really selling the most actively. Well, I'm sure that'll continue to be the case, right? Those those single family dwellings are, are tend to be the most popular, right? For sure, yeah. So I'm sure that'll be the case in 2020. Anything else you want to throw on the table while I have no, you in here? Thanks so much for having us, and we're looking forward to another great year. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Wendy. Really appreciate your time. That was the president of the Kamloops and District Real Estate Association, Wendy Ranji. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. Have a great weekend, and I'll be back here on Monday at 9.